Hey, welcome to Simply Faithful. My name is Eric Tunges. I'm the pastor of Gray Central Church in Omaha, Nebraska. My name is Gray Ewing. I pastor New Valley Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And here on Simply Faithful, we like to have Christian conversations without the hype. We like to have just normal discussions with each other and every once in a while with other interesting people about life and faith and ministry in our world. Yeah, Eric and I go back a long ways. We go back and forth and we talk like this in our normal lives. And we thought at some point it'd be good to throw a microphone in front of it and uh, see if anybody else is interested in what we're saying. Turns out a few of you are. This week, Sloth. Welcome back. We have been having an intermittent series, Gray, about the seven deadly sins. It's been a way for us to mix up with some of our regular discussions, digging down into these historic categories that many wise people in the church felt were helpful ways of summarizing different areas that we can struggle with sin. These are not the ultimate sins in the sense of the worst things you can do, but these are in many ways the foundational sins, the first roots of sin that lead us astray. And this week, we're going to talk about what people call sloth. One of the things that strikes me about this conversation is that I think this is a sin that's really necessary to discuss and a lot more widespread than we realize, but that on the surface, a lot of people, maybe especially in America don't feel like we need to talk about, or at least don't feel like they need to talk about. They have some sense that their neighbor is maybe slothful. But the reality is that in our culture, we all recognize that actually most people are extremely busy and extremely engaged and work a lot and are obsessed in many ways with efficiency and perfecting things. I came across the really interesting stat. This was from a few years ago, but pretty recently that uh, tried to map out the average work week in different developed countries. And in the top developed countries in the world, the United States actually, on average, people work the most hours, even more than Japan, which has these stereotypes about people working these like 80-hour weeks and falling over from exhaustion. And I was really struck by, by that idea as something we talk about. So in the first place, we might think, well, we don't struggle with sloth. And in the second place, I also think we can struggle to talk about it because it just doesn't seem like a very bad sin to a lot of us. I'll be, I'll be honest, Eric. The, the first thing that pops in my head when we hear the word sloth, of course, is the, the little mild creature that slowly goes through trees. And to associate that with a deadly sin seems kind of almost humorous. Absolutely. It doesn't start wars, right? You know, I mean, people murder people in fits of pride or greed or lust, but I don't think anyone's probably been killed in a fit of sloth. That very idea <laughs> is kind of inimical to the idea. So why discuss it, Gray? Why Why is this a sin that we want to spend time talking about? I'll also add just before I say why we should discuss it, I was thinking that it's it's one of those sins that people humble brag about more than others. So I thought that was interesting as well. People don't say like the same kinds of things that they do about sloth or laziness that they do about other sins. People will often say, oh, I'm just so lazy, you know, and they're kind of smiling about it. Um, and uh, we're going to distinguish sloth from laziness here in just a minute. But um, that whole idea of like, that's kind of an acceptable 
thing. We don't say like, oh, well, you know, I'm so lustful, you know, <laughs> as a joke. Um, and so it's interesting that this has kind of crept into our cultural awareness in a sense and become kind of acceptable and also kind of mild. And it, it's hard for us to kind of muster up the, the will to address it as one of a deadly sin. But I do think that it is pervasive and that's the start of why we should discuss it. It's something that is misunderstood. That's another reason I think we should discuss it is people don't fully know exactly what that is. This sloth idea, um, we associate only with laziness sometimes and also only with a kind of character flaw or a kind of personality that is different than like an actual practice or a sin. For all those reasons, I think we should kind of clear the air a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start there talking about what it isn't. You said, first of all, that it's not laziness or it's at least not necessarily laziness. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? Sure. It is laziness. It can be laziness. So the scriptures talk about the lazy person who cannot be bothered to raise his hand from the dish of food that's in front of him and can't be bothered to be, um, to care about for instance, the poor and the needy, or that can't be bothered to uh, be concerned about someone else's troubles. That's something that the scripture talks about. So laziness, meaning you're so full of uh, lethargy and or food that you don't do much at all in the world. But um, the opposite of that, we sometimes say is, is kind of the rest principle, you should work and you should rest. And uh, some people think that that means that, you know, sloth is kind of like too much rest or something like that. Whereas I would say rest is a good gift of God. And it's something that is, a, that is given to us to enjoy. Uh, but sloth has different boundaries. Yeah. Maybe what I would say on that regard is that laziness can be a result of sloth. But it's not necessarily the only thing that can result from the sin of sloth or struggling with sloth, which will make more sense once we actually define the thing in a minute. But yeah, I also just want to stress that one of the things that I think that people, when you start equating sloth with rest or with recreation, which is part of why I think that people kind of just laugh about it or, you know, or don't treat it that badly because they, they connect it with that in their minds. Then, then you start to think that the solution to it is through busyness. But yeah, let, let's let's zoom out here then and say, okay, if it's not those things, what are we talking about here? Before we actually dig into dealing with it and stuff, what did the church historically mean when it talked about sloth? And so let me give the very basic definition and then I'll ask you if you want to kind of expand on it. But so the word historically that was used that we have kind of translated into sloth is acedia, which means to be without care. And really the idea is this. We said in our first podcast about the seven deadly sins that you can view all of these sins as disordered desires. And so, you know, there's a disordered desire for money and possessions that is greed. There's a disordered desire for um, sex, which is lust. There's disordered desires in relation to your neighbor, which is where envy comes from, things like that. But sloth is really saying there's also a way that your desires can be disordered simply by not having enough desire, not having sufficient desire or not having any desire at all. It's not caring properly for things or not caring about things that you should care about. Yeah, the historical setting in which that really came to be was in 
the monasteries where a lot of the seven deadly sins got kind of shaped and filled out. And the Ascedia was called the, the noonday devil, right? This is uh, the experience of the monks. They would get up at, you know, four or five in the morning and begin to pray and they would pray through the Psalter and it's lunchtime and they, they had lunch and then, then they would be so tired and they would, they would think, I don't care about praying anymore. That, that feeling would creep in of, is this really worth it? And then all kinds of other things would start creep, creeping in, just like other desires that you had, disordered desires that they would have for sex or for different kinds of food or a different life. And so the monks would have this, like, beware of the noonday devil. I think all of us who eat lunch after a hard morning of work understand what that means, right? It's that that afternoon feeling of, is what I'm doing mattering? What is the purpose of all this? And then interestingly, historically, it's been associated with not just the day itself, but the day as in our day being a metaphor for our lives. And so, some have even associated the, uh, the midlife crisis, so to speak, as the noonday devil, where in the middle of our lives, we begin to perhaps more so than any other time of our lives, begin to realize, hey, my life isn't fully what I want it to be. Do I have the right desires? And we get kind of, our desires get kind of shaped and molded, sometimes uh, just dropping off completely. Like I have no desire to do anything anymore. And so it can be seen through the life lens. It can be seen through the lens of the day. And it can be seen through the lens of just kind of a, 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 a spiritual struggle that I think we can all relate with. Yeah, I'd say the root thing to understand when we're talking about this is just that in Christianity, desire is not a bad thing. Even having deep desires for things is not a bad thing. That's why what we say is it's disordered desire when it's sin. And that's important to say. I think some people, because we get this sort of vague spirituality kind of thing that creeps into our culture where people mix and match, there are a number of religions, especially a lot of Eastern religions, that view sort of the human problem as desire. And what we need to do is just learn not to desire. But Christianity would say that desire is good. In the first place, I mean, desire for God ultimately is supposed to be this all-encompassing thing where things like zeal are encouraged. I think about like in Psalm 42, you know, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. That's a, a deep, powerful kind of image of a deep desire for God. And then out of that, also like an appropriate deep desire for good things that he's made and the the parts of our lives that he's given us. And so like sloth is a failure to properly desire those things in the ways that we're supposed to. Yeah, look at the New Testament, look at Apostle, the Apostle Paul, for instance, too, in terms of he had uh, desires. He even translated the Christian life into a kind of these kind of metaphors about you know, ambition and, um, and completion, like finish the race that you've started, uh, fight the good fight, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is an activity. There is an ambition towards, uh, the things of God that the scriptures commends to us. And then we find ourselves in sloth, either turning those way down or just not feeling them at all. Yeah. And it's, it's coming out of that grade that makes me think that I wonder sometimes if sloth is really one of the ursins of our modern era, which again seems weird to people because, you know, efficiency and productivity and we work and, and all of that stuff. But one of the things that strikes me about my experience of the modern world and about, I think, a lot of people's experiences of the modern world is that for a whole bunch of complicated reasons that have to do with technology and have to do with a lot of our basic needs being 
really met in a way they weren't historically and the distractedness of our lives and all of that, that I know a lot of people that kind of move through the world with very little desire for anything. Like they don't have very deep desires and it seasons of my life, I found myself struggling with that. And I do think that's maybe almost not uniquely, but more so than many times in the past, a characteristic of life in the modern age. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think there's, you can see that in things like uh, the bailing culture, you know, like the, this has been written about in the New York, New York times and other places like this tendency that we have to bail on each other. So in other words, I would say like, yeah, I'm totally down for this party or whatever. And then like say, Oh, sorry to bail. You know, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. And that, that phrase, like I'm feeling overwhelmed or I can't even right now, that's become so, so common that it's like, there's not even a real apology for it anymore. It's just like everybody understands that everybody's overwhelmed and doesn't have desire for even good things. And, um, yeah, and it's affected my life as well. I mean, I think people that I remember it's telling someone one time that of the seven deadly sins, the one that I struggled with the most was <laughs> acedia at times. And, uh, and they were just baffled by that. They're like, you work so hard. You work, you know, so efficiently. And, and I was like, yeah, it's not, it's not about that. It's about those desires that get sideways, right? It's the, what do I do? How do I understand that God has called me into this meaningful life and that to kind of avoid that, um, that meaning sometimes seems very natural to many of us, I think, in the, in the modern era. Yeah. I think maybe one of the root causes of it is that meaninglessness or that sense of self defined meaning. But I think that also really helps then explain why sloth is so bad because I think that sloth really does two things. One is that it's a breeding ground for other sins. And two is that it just sort of saps our ability to fight against other sins. So like thinking about the second one, there have been times in counseling people where there's some issue, I think especially like in marriages, right? Where, where you can just see in one or both people's eyes as they're going through these marital struggles that just like they don't really care. They don't have enough desire there to kind of muster up the energy to then seek to work on their marriage and pursue the other person and love the other person. There's that kind of deadness. And and I see that about a lot of things about the spiritual life as a whole. So yeah, I think that can be a big problem. Yeah. And I should we should say as well that sometimes the acedia is there because the person isn't animated towards God at all. That is a possibility. You can be unregenerate and, and there, there is no desire for God. There is no meaning for you. Um, you can also be apostate, which is that, you know, you could walk away from, from God and, um, like, like Demas in Second Timothy who walks away from the faith in love with this present world and has found a new desire. But for many of us that are Christians and we're just, this is a struggle for us. It's, it manifests itself more in, in terms of like distance from, from God and from what would be a, a great experience of him, a meaningful, you know, walk with him. And so it get, it gets kind of tangled for those of us who are believers and seeking to, to walk in faithfulness. Absolutely. I think the tension is that all it takes is that mustard seed of faith in a sense to be a Christian, right? I mean, you can walk away from that or you can not have that. And that's obviously a separate issue, but you know, it only takes that little beginning of faith to be a Christian, but obviously faith, desire for God, delight in God, those are meant to be things that grow and they're meant in the Christian life to be experienced in a really deep and profound way. And it's not good or healthy 
when it's just that little mustard seed of desire. And then also that does really open the door to other sins. One of the reasons I think that things like pornography or gluttony so easily dominate certain people's struggles is just because they don't have very deep desires. And so the pleasures of food or of orgasm in a dark room, which are real pleasures, but are relatively small pleasures compared to like climbing a mountain or holding a laughing child in your arms. Like those aren't actually very profound pleasures, but when you've had those deeper desires sapped, then it becomes much harder to resist those sort of fleeting desires of sin. Yeah. I've even noticed it in certain like repetitive games or something on your phone. I've noticed that there's a one or two little games on my phone that if I'm playing them, you know, a few days in a row, I'm like, okay, this is me escaping. You know, this is, it's just something repetitive. And it's like, like you said, a very small victory. It's the least demanding thing that can fill the time. Correct. And so it's, Again, there's no shame here. There's Christians are going to struggle with this, right? There's, there's going to be a lack of desire sometimes. And neither Eric nor I are saying in this that, that you should always have uh, a meaningful walk with God in the sense that you can track it and that it can always be, you know, robust. There are times when you are praying without feeling it. There are times when you're going to church, even though you'd rather not. There are times when you're reading the scriptures, even though they seem dead to you. And you persist in those things, not because you are so off base all the time. I mean, this is a reality of sin in our lives but and in the world, but it's it, it's going to happen. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it is something to be aware of. Absolutely. Although I do also want to stress in that, that Yes, 100%. There are seasons, there are dry seasons, there are seasons of of grief or depression when your desires are really shallow and you're called to just seek to be faithful in as much as you can and God honors the reality of that faithfulness. But I do think it's also important to say that that shallow desire is itself a problem. And like when you don't desire God or the things of God, one, you still seek to be faithful and obey him because you're called to do that. But two, you do also try to foster and grow in that desire. And I do think that there's also a danger in this sort of like, well, I'm just going to grip my teeth and be faithful, where you're not probing your heart and asking, why am I struggling with this? What can I do to address this? That's also really problematic because we aren't wired to go for years and years to go for our whole Christian lives without that sort of desire and zeal for the Lord. So great. With that said, there's some related ideas I want to talk about. But first, actually, let's Given what we've said, I think people are maybe just going to feel that like, but man, what does that mean? How do I fight that? So what are some ways that we can fight against sloth and grow in those desires? I want to say first that the thing that I think brings the greatest return of that is the presence of God in your life and experiencing his nearness again is in my experience, the the greatest return from acedia. That, again, is not something that you can use elbow grease to just like make happen in your life. However, we are told in Scripture to ask for it. So, starting with the very basics, you see in the Psalms that David says, you know, return to me the joy of my salvation and restore that to me. Have you, if you're in this season of sloth, have you asked for a return of, of the joy of salvation? Have you asked for a return of the meaningful desires towards your family or towards your career? Have you started with asking for it? And 
and asking, you know, we can be the the persistent widow in Scripture too, uh, not just like, have you thought about maybe wanting this to be different in your life, but have you been on your knees and asking God for this return? He honors that request. Uh, maybe not always in the timeline or in the exact way that we think that he will, but that is something that would be a first scriptural response that comes to my mind. That's really good. Another thing I think about a lot in this regard is that part of, part of sloth, I think happens because we're not, our eyes just aren't really open to the surrounding world, to the actual beauty and goodness of what we have around us. I remember years ago, I don't even remember who wrote it, but reading this really striking, a sermon illustration. It was like, why, why don't adult novelty, you know, like pornography stores have windows? And the argument was basically that if you could look outside and see the sunshine and the glory of creation, that it would be a lot less appealing, the sort of stuff that was on offer there. And I do think that there's something to just intentionally opening your eyes, listening to your life, paying attention to what's around you, like the, the beauty of creation, the beauty of your, your children or your spouse, the things of God, and just that, that very simple, I mean, even just something like really savoring food and drink, but very intentionally trying to re-engage your heart with your experience of the world rather than just sort of uh, distractedly moving through it. There's a quote, I can't remember who said it, maybe somebody like Thomas Keating or some, you know, one of those, um, spiritual <laughs> renewal kind of speakers, but it, it has stuck with me. And I think it said something like this. If your mind gets distracted a, a thousand times, that's a thousand opportunities to return to Christ, which is a way of, you know, making positive whatever, whatever negative <laughs> thing you're going through. If you're feeling distracted, if you're feeling, like you've walked away from Christ. Like think of the, think of the return of that as a beautiful gift from God. Like he's, he's made you aware, maybe even through listening to a podcast. Hey, I, this is true of my life. There's just kind of a lack of meaning. There's a lack of direction. The return is beautiful always to Christ. He always receives us back in. And so I think what ways could I return back in. Another thing that comes to my mind as well is, you know, we all have desires and some of them are weaker, weaker, and some of them are stronger, but you can take something that you already desire and use that as a way of, re of returning to Christ. So in other words, if you're, you're already enjoying something like, like already you run in the mornings or something like that, you can, you could think about like, how can I turn this run into something else, you know, with with the Lord, whether it's listening to something or another kind of practice? There's ways to say, like, I'm already doing certain things that I desire. We all we're desiring creatures. So whatever we're doing, we want to desire in some kind of we have some kind of desires. So how can I use those things I already desire as a way to return back to Christ? Let me give one other kind of practical thing that I found helpful in fighting sloth, which is to just. You kind of have to clear out in your life, in your rhythms of life, the stuff that you're using just to fill up the time in order to have that desire. I, I've been rereading some Blaise Pascal lately, who was very influential on me years ago, but he has this idea where he says, first he says, everybody is unhappy, which is provocative to people, but really on some basic level, humanity and sin without God experiences life as unhappiness. 
And what we're meant to do is to let that unhappiness ultimately drive us towards, for him, like contemplation and then an appropriation and engagement with the divine. But instead, he says what, what most people do is they fill up their life with diversions. And so they find he's especially thinking about the nobles of his late medieval world, but hunting and sport and plays and dinners and trite social engagements, all of these, these sort of diversions. And in our world, that is, I mean, mostly that's smartphones, right? <laughs> but that's, but that's all the stuff that we fill up our time with, all the activities, the, 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 the TV, the, the smartphone. And unfortunately, sometimes even things like the podcasts that are sort of saying, how can I fill this space with something that's minimally demanding and keeps me distracted from what Pascal's calling your unhappiness? Whereas what you need to do ultimately is to press through some of that unhappiness to Christ and find that joy and delight in him. But one of the things that you're going to have to do if you're in that distracted state is to just very intentionally unplug or set boundaries around some of those distractions. Because as things currently exist, they're filling up your time and your heart with trivial but time-consuming stuff. That's right. And just like with anything else, it's going to be a muscle that you have to work, right? I mean, you're not going to feel an instant connection because you've taken away something in your life. But I agree. Take, take it away and, and fill it with other things and begin to work on that muscle and you'll, you'll see the desire returning. Let's just touch on a couple of related ideas to sloth in the Christian tradition, Gray, before we leave the topic entirely. Hopefully that's some good practical stuff for people. But one of the things that's always been sort of related to sloth is the idea of sins of omission. And I feel like that's something that some Christians think a lot about, but some Christians have never processed. Do you want to maybe just define that first and talk a little bit about what we mean by that? Yeah, we say in the tradition of the Anglican prayer book, oftentimes in our prayer of confession at church, you know, the, please forgive us for things that we have done and things that we have left undone. And the, for, the things that we have done are what we call the sins of com commission. We commit sins, but we also are guilty of sins of omission. That's the what we have left undone. And so omission means we leave out good things that we should be doing. And so I think where you're going with this is sloth is opens up the world of omission to us, right? It's like all the things we haven't had the desire to do, are we responsible for those in some way? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that one of the things that lets people get away with a great measure of sloth is that they kind of define sin just in terms of avoiding this set of bad things. And ultimately, if you're living in a CDA, you're going to struggle with those bad things too. It's not, it's not proof against that. But the problem is that simply avoiding bad things isn't really the Christian vision of obedience. The Christian vision of obedience is love, which is a positive. It's an active thing. So there's that danger where you end up in the place of, of really like religion, where you always think about, I always think about the Good Samaritan in terms of sins of omission, where you have this priest and this Levite who are both they're, they're maybe even about the work of the Lord, quote unquote, and certainly live very pious lives where they avoid sin, but they leave this guy dying at the side of the road because they don't actually act out the love that they're called to have for this person in need. They omit that. And as a consequence of that, they're very much in sin. Yeah, that's well said, Eric. Um, you know, one thing that was helpful to me many years ago is listening to John Piper and talk about desire. And it stuck with me what he said when he said, you know, what is, what do I do when I don't desire God? And he gave kind of a, a three-step uh, process. You know, he's picturing somebody that's like trying to read the word, trying to pray or something. And, um, 
you know, what, what do I do when that it's not coming to me naturally? And he said, the first thing is you repent, right? Because we are, we're actually called to desire God. People say the scriptures can't command emotions. They absolutely, absolutely command emotions. They absolutely command our, our very hearts. And so when we look at the passion of David, it's not meant to say in the Psalms that we're always going to have that level, but it is a model to live into and something to pray into. And so repent, he says, you know, we, we should desire God above all else. That's how we're, how we're made. And then, then he said, ask. Ask for the desire to return. That's a, that's a prayer that God loves to answer. And then he says, do whatever you need to do anyway, right? Which is like Christian duty. And I think that captures well the, the approach, which is that we're, we're committing sins of omission. So, so repent. We're also recognizing something human, which is we want this and it's not coming naturally and we can't force it to happen. That's like grace. So we ask for the, the grace of God to, to grant us what we don't have. And that's always the answer, right? To some of these sins, it's to return to Christ and say, you know, make me alive to your purposes in the world. Yet we're called to a Christian duty, right? We're called to, to follow after Christ and to give our lives to him and to pray to the father and to walk in his word and to, and so there's, there's a duty aspect to the Christian life and that shouldn't ever be cut out either. So I thought that was helpful. That is good. Let me add one other thing that I think about a lot in relation to acedia. And that has to do with the idea of what I call agency, but really it's just the idea that you, are responsible for and in a sense in control of your own actions and decisions. And this could be a whole nother philosophical conversation if you wanted to have it. But here's, here's what I mean by that. I think for a lot of reasons, both in our culture and in the church, Christians can get the idea in the head that they just can't help it, that they can't change, that some struggle with sin, some part of their life, some thing that they're called to do is outside of their control. Culturally, that happens a lot kind of scientifically through the sort of biological determinism that creeps into a lot of our discussions where we just assume that everything, including people's psychology and decisions and desires are just the product of outside forces and that they're not actually choosing and deciding. And within Christianity, some of that creeps in from sort of what I think is a wrongheaded idea about sin. And some of that creeps in from wrongheaded ideas about God's sovereignty now, absolutely, we as believers will still struggle with indwelling sin, and absolutely God is sovereign. And really part of why as believers we have agency is because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. But biblically, I think for believers, it's really important to say you are free from bondage to sin. God is working in you to will and to work according to, to, to his good pleasures. You do really have the power to decide and choose and change depending on God's strength. Yes, not independent of that. But God's also promised to give you that strength as you ask and as you seek to move forward. And that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect or anything like that. But I do think that it's really important to also stress, especially to people that are in the throes of sloth, that you are a significant creature with real agency over your life, including in things like your struggles with sin, that you really do have the power to stand against temptation and with the shield of faith and all of that to, to resist and to, to pursue godliness in real measure in your life. And I just, I feel like that has to be said because I, I consistently encounter people that I think don't really believe that that's true. Yeah, it's almost like some folks believe that they were born with a gene that <laughs> makes them indecisive about their life or something. And therefore, there's an, every excuse to, you know, live without 
any sense of purpose and direction. And um, again, as pastors, we're going to be gracious and sympathetic to that because there's lots of things that in the modern world have pushed us into meaninglessness. I mean, let's be real about that. But on the other hand, what you're saying is true. I like what uh, Paul says about it. You know, I work with all his energy that works so powerfully within me. But the emphasis in the first part of that command is I work, right? And, uh, and, then, and then I watch what God does in and through me, but I work. Yeah, I think of it in Christians. I feel like it's often, so in Romans 7, you have this very famous, you know, I desire the things of God, but what I wish to do, I don't do. And sin works in me to make me do what I do not want to do. And we're not going to discuss Romans 7. I'm pretty sure we actually disagree about the interpretation of Romans 7. But regardless of your interpretation of Romans 7, the point of it is then Romans 8, what can set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God. The spirit of life has set me free from the the law of sin and death. And so if you don't have that sense of freedom and an ability to really engage as a Christian, then I think you've really missed the core thrust of part of what God is doing in saving and setting us free. That's right. It was for freedom that we were set free, not so that we can be in bondage to our own lack of desire anymore. I think we're going to leave it there, Gray. It is our habit every time we meet because desire is a good thing and we're designed to have desire to talk about something that's been good in our lives. And so my question for you, Gray, is what's something that's been good for you lately? Got a record I'm obsessed with and it is not a new one. It is from the year of our Lord, AD 1989. And uh, it's by this band called the Blue Nile. Have you ever heard of the Blue Nile? I don't think I have. It was new to me as well. Uh, this was a Spotify recommendation, if you can believe it or not. It said, hey, you may like this. But the Blue Nile is a Scottish band that uh, has been around since the early 80s. There is no official word that they've ever broken up. Their last uh, work was in 2004. But uh, they've released four albums in 40 years, roughly. <laughs> and um, so there is about seven to ten years between uh, each album. There's a joke about Acedia there. There you go. <laughs> they avoid the media. They're mysterious. Nobody fully understands who they are. Uh, but they're, they've written this amazing album called Hats. And it's it's actually kind of a cult classic. And I've been totally unaware of it. But, you know, it's 80s sounding. If you like synthesizers, if you like a uh, drum machines, but, uh, but in a very subtle, slow kind of way, I recommend the, the album Hats. And uh, it's like if you close your eyes and you're listening to it, you can't imagine that it's not raining outside. It is so mournful and <laughs> delicious. It is um, this kind of this alternative pop noir amazingness and it's very mysterious because nobody hardly knows anything about these these guys who lead this band man it's just been on constant repeat and i want to play a little bit here from uh their their this will this will give you an idea of the sound and if you'll you'll dig it or not because it'll definitely be polarizing to some but this is their song 7 a.m spelled out s-e-v-e-n a.m So that's the song. It's been a while since we've done an album recommendation. That's why I wanted to do it. Yeah, I was like, man, 
where, where's the music? This, our lives need a soundtrack, and uh, so does this podcast. Yeah, my soundtrack is largely dictated by my children, especially my two sons who use our Alexa in our house to constantly play parodies of pop songs about Fortnite and Minecraft. You're supposed to be discipling them, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) With that said, friends, thanks again for joining us here at Simply Faithful. We are always privileged that you would jump into these conversations. We hope that they're spiritually beneficial to you. And we would really appreciate it if you find them helpful and know somebody that would benefit from them to share it with a friend. We always want this conversation to be growing and to have more faces around the table. Our website is simplyfaithful.org and our Instagram handle is at simplyfaithfulpod. With that said, I'm Eric. I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful. 